This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I had already started creating that, those uh, investor relationships. So I had talked to people and said, hey, if I ever find a deal that makes sense, if I ever find you know, a property that, that you may want to be involved in, can I bring it to you? You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. Let's get to today's show sponsor. After building my own portfolio, speaking with over 100 investors on this podcast and many more from the Facebook group, I've noticed a few common themes of why people don't get started or remain successful in real estate. They don't have the right team. They aren't sure of their market or they don't know where to find deals. The people at Martel Turnkey are fixing this. That's why they offer fully turnkey properties in markets where the numbers actually make sense. What does this mean? It means they buy properties at a discount, fix them up, put a tenant in place, and oh yeah, give you options for property management or financing. They have people on the ground in cities where you can still cash flow and see appreciation every single month. I'll say it as simply as this. When you have the right team and systems in place, there's no reason not to get started. If you like a property or have any questions, you can schedule a phone call by clicking on the link below or going on their website and clicking on the contact tab to set up a call. There is no hard sell, push, or commitment needed. The call will be there to answer any questions you have or to see if or how their products might be a good fit for you and what you're looking for. So visit martelturnkey.com and click contact or send an email to info at martelturnkey.com today. What's going on, guys? Today, we have an awesome episode with Jens Nielsen. Jens is based in New Mexico. He has a very interesting portfolio of multifamily apartments. Uh, he invests in self-storage, in mobile homes passively, along with a couple other strategies. But between him and his wife and a few friends, he has about 85 units that they kind of call their personal portfolio. And then he has syndicated through his company, Open Doors Capital, approximately 775 units in Colorado and New Mexico. It's very interesting because he had a, a technical background. He was not doing real estate out of college. He was working in IT until about five years ago and then just decided this was the route he wanted to go. He goes through how he got started, how he found his mentor, how he found his first couple of deals. Really interesting story that uh, I think anyone can follow if they just decide they actually want to take action and follow that, which was a theme of this episode, taking action and having a plan. Uh, the main learning I had from this episode was how multifamily syndicators actually make money. Uh, this is something that I will be digging into more on future episodes, YouTube, within the Facebook group, talking about how syndicators actually get compensated and what they can expect to make typically, nothing exact, but typically 
on a deal based on different size and criteria, because I don't want people to get the misconception that syndication is another form of passive investing. Uh, it's a business. It's an actual career that people can leave their jobs and scale a real estate portfolio to, but it's not something that you do on the side. Uh, and for that reason, you know, you have to look at it like a business, but you're also investing with investors and you're raising capital and you have much smaller portions of the deal. So someone that had, this is a crazy concept, but we talk about how it's set up, but someone that has a thousand units syndicated could be making on a yearly basis as much as the person who has, let's say 50 or 70 units just by themselves. Depends on a multitude of factors, location, property type, business model, all that. But uh, I just want to make it clear that syndicators um, are owning smaller portions of deals than someone that owns a 50 unit portfolio and the whole thing themselves. And they can also control it a lot differently. So we'll be going into that, but he also breaks it out very clearly in this episode, how syndicators make money and what they can expect it to be compensated for. So that's that. Today's tangible tip. He talks a little bit about taking action and the right types of action uh, and where he thinks a lot of beginners get it wrong. And one of the places he thinks they get it wrong is they take action, but action that doesn't matter. So people think taking action, such as setting up your website or building your social media or getting your headshots done is taking action, which I guess technically it is, but he's saying it's just irrelevant action. That's not the action that you actually need to start moving the needle forward in your business. What he's saying, a tangible, actionable, a needle moving thing that you can be doing is calling brokers. So if you're going to take action, it doesn't need to be building your website or getting business cards. It needs to be calling 10 brokers a day, sending out direct mail, doing research that's actually going to matter to help you get offers out. Things that actually move the needle forward that you can look back on and say, these are getting me closer to my goal. Building a website is not necessary when you're just starting out. So it was a really important thing that he said that I hadn't heard said exactly like that. So uh, listen for that. I think it was it was really well said. So anyway, without any further ado, uh, really good episode today with Jens Nielsen. All right, Jens, what is going on? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. I'm really excited about this interview today. Yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. I think your message is going to relate with our listenership, a lot of which are trying to get into multifamily or at least figure out how to scale on multifamily. And uh, you've done that quite rapidly and uh, have a lot of units accumulated. So we'll talk about that. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about coronavirus, uh, what your future forecast and any challenges, trials, tribulations you've had the last couple months putting some deals together. I know you're working on, but before we get into any of that, you mind just giving our listeners a high level overview of how you got into real estate. And then also from a high level, bring us up to speed on where the business is today. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I have been in IT for a long time, like 20 plus years. And about five years ago, I realized that if I was going to ever generate any kind of wealth, ever even get out of my W2 job, I would have to go in a different direction. And real estate just became, you know, I looked at a lot of different ways of path and real estate was kind of the things, thing I settled on. And I just went out there and I, I started, you know, learning and, and, educating myself about what it would take to be a successful investor and uh, just started taking action. And that was four years ago. Now we've, you know, gone, we have like 80 some units that we own, uh, me and my wife ourselves or with a couple of JV partners. And then we've syndicated over 800 units in the last three or four years. So it's been a rapid acceleration and people think, well, that sounds crazy. Well, it's not magic. There's actually just working through the steps and taking the right action and everything else. So that's where I'm at now. 
Okay, awesome. So can you just take us back to the beginning before you had any units? So I know there's a part of this that's probably mindset based. And then there's, like you said, before you hit record a part that's mechanics based and actually understanding what's a good deal? How do you find a deal? How do you find money? Those sort of things. So can you take us back to maybe before that first deal? Um, what led to you getting the first deal? What you needed to start educating yourself on, the people you needed to surround yourself with, um, the process that you actually used to find that first deal and finance that first deal? If you could just take us back to that. Yeah. So when I decided that multifamily was the path, right? I immediately started thinking about who, who do I know in my network that's already doing this? And I reached out to a friend that I knew through uh, something else and said, hey, I think, aren't you investing in multifamily? And he said, well, it's more like mobile homes, but I've had a lot of multifamily as well. And he had like hundreds of units, but I didn't, didn't realize how, how big he was. So like, cool, man, how do I get into this? So I just started asking him questions and I bought him some dinner and I asked him a bunch of questions because I'm kind of very analytical and it's like, what are the next steps or what I need to do next in order to move forward? And we very quickly um, got into that, um, that conversation and basically um, decided that, you know, he said, you got to reach out to this gentleman. He's a good broker. He has helped me a lot in the past. So let's, let's work with him and you can kind of just, uh, do your first deal and it ended up being, you know, a fourplex. That was kind of what my mindset was buying four unit deal in uh, pretty inexpensively in, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico was where I started actually. Got it. So was it just traditional financing your own money uh, on market, that sort of thing? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So basically I reached out to this broker who has now since become my mentor and also my partner. And I said, okay, you know, I'm looking for a deal. I don't really know what, but you know, a four unit or something like that. And he, within a month or so, he brought this deal to me that was just on market, um, older property in not such a great neighborhood, but it was um, inexpensive. It was like $115,000 or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, it needed some work, uh, but you know, it was our own money. <clears throat> And we just got like 30 year fixed financing on it. Um, and then we put some money into it to kind of fix it up and, and rent out a couple of units that were vacant when they took it over. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. And is your model, was your, your model value add then or was that more of a turnkey property? I assume with what you're doing now, you're looking for properties that you can force appreciation add value to and increase the NOI. But was that your thought from the beginning or is that something that uh, you've always had? It was kind of my thought from the beginning because I realized a lot of the properties in that market were pretty worn out, pretty tired. So anything we bought there had needed some amount of work. That's just been the reality. That's also why we've been buying them at pretty, you know, low prices because we knew they needed work. We knew they needed, we need to go in there and really do a, do a, a decent uh, amount of improvements. Some has been as you know far as I'm actually just finishing a unit right now that we pretty much went down to the bare walls, tore everything out because it was such a in bad shape, right? That was expensive, but it's always been value add, I guess is the, is the conclusion here. So take us, take us through what your first, let's say larger multifamily deal looked like. I think a lot of people are maybe in a position where they think they're ready to scale into maybe a, for them, what would be a larger building, a 20 unit or 30 unit building for them to maybe start with a JV deal but uh, they're feeling like there are so many different things that they might need to think about first, how to analyze deals, how to find deals, how to start raising money. So 
for you, can you maybe just talk us through what your process was finding your first, let's say, deal over five units or deal over 10 units that, you know, you were either going to do JV or syndication for and how you kind of compartmentalize it. I know you mentioned you're an analytical thinker. So uh, I, I like that. We love that if people can put into process what they've done. Uh, so can you just take us through what the process was like getting one of the bigger deals done? Yeah. So my fourth deal was a, um, a JV. I had done two, four units and an 11 unit with my own capital. Then I talked to my then broker and I said, okay, how can I get into something bigger? And he said, well, if you, uh, if you find a deal, I will partner with you and, you know, we can maybe, if you can find some people that also want to go into it, let's all, you know, kind of do a joint venture on this. So I had, you know, right. So there's really two aspects to any successful deal, right? It's finding the money and then finding the deal, I guess. That's kind of the two, how I kind of, you know, look at it, right? So I had already started creating that, those uh, investor relationships. So I had talked to people and said, hey, if I ever find a deal that makes sense, if I ever find, you know, a property that, that you may want to be involved in, can I bring it to you? And, you know, a few people had expressed interest and I just, I found this deal, it's actually on Loopness, 38 unit. I found it and I started underwriting it. And once I felt comfortable with the numbers, I took it to my, you know, a couple of my friends and said, hey, here's the deal I have. What do you guys feel about it? It's something you want to be involved in. And they, they said yes. And then my, my property manager slash broker was also in, interested. So we all joined together on there. But I just had the confidence that by then I had educated myself enough. I'd had a few deals. I knew what it took to take a larger, to, to, to manage these smaller deals. So I felt like it was a reasonable step to go bigger. And also my partner was already, um, had done much of their larger deals than that. So that felt comfortable as well in that regards. Okay. Got it. From the beginning, was there any part of this that you felt more comfortable with or less comfortable with? Like some people, uh, say that they're good at finding deals. Some people say they're good at underwriting deals. Um, I know for me personally, in the deals that I've done, uh, underwriting deals is not my strong suit. I'm more of, um, relationships, capital, that sort of thing. So for you at the beginning, were there any skill sets that you felt like you could lean into a little more easily, or you knew that you would not like doing in the deals or, or maybe you do everything? Um, I'm certainly more the analytical person. So I'll take the numbers and I'll plug them in and I'll kind of logically look over what trying to get actually, I like to tell anybody I work with, like get a story of how this property has been performing because it's very easy to see the broker's OM and said, oh, it's going to do all these wonderful things. But you got to really spend some time understanding how has that deal performed in the past and can you do better than that? That's one of the first things I always look at. So spend a lot of time on the T12s and the rent rolls and all those things and really understanding that story and then plugging it into my model to see, okay, based upon what I'm seeing there, what I think the property can do, does that make sense going forward? So the analytical side and also like what are all the steps we need to do, kind of that project plan, right? To make sure all the, the, the individual steps happen along the way. So that's the other side of it. Um, you know, I've, I've become more comfortable talking to investors as well. That is something I do enjoy the one-on-one. -on -one. I can't say I'm a, <clears throat> a great, like going out there and cold calling people and trying to find sellers and all that stuff. That's certainly not an area I do enjoy too much. So even talking to brokers, um, I would, I would leave that up to some of my partners and some of my deals to do that.
Mm -hmm. So right now in most of the deals you do, is it, do you have the same core partners on each of these deals or are some being brought in on a deal by deal basis? So there's me and one other guy who has done the last uh, three syndications together. And that's kind of, you know, him and I bring the, the experience, the net worth, the liquidity to the deals. And then we partner with a few other people on some deals that maybe there was in their market, maybe they had, um, you know, boots on the ground, maybe they had the deals. So we'll go in and kind of partner with them. But I am definitely partnering on with one with one gentleman every time now because we have a good synergy going there and and I think it's been a learning experience like who do you want to work with why do you want to work with certain people who can you you know feel aligned with and everything else and that's something I've learned along the way as well what were some of your biggest learnings on that first deal that you raised capital and it was not just your own money uh any any challenges or failures or things that you guys had to work through or wish you would have known when you first gotten started? Yes, it had some challenges for sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, the big challenge was this was a building, I think built in the seventies and we knew it needed a lot of work cause it was pretty tired. And we did bring a lot of equity to that deal. We also did realize that there was more problems behind the walls than we had really anticipated. So we had to go and actually replumb a significant part of the property because literally the plumbing was leaking in the slab, which is, that gets ugly and expensive. So we had to go and like pretty much tear out the units, put like um, uh, pecs, you know, plumbing through the soffits and make like, you know, just do a lot of work on the plumbing, you know, tear out drywall and everything else. So. It cost, I guess the bottom line is it cost more money and it took longer than we expected. Um, luckily, we had just a couple of JV partners. So everybody were kind of like, yeah, we understand what's going on. We're not happy about it, but we also we realized the situation. And now it's been stabilized now. It's 100% occupied. We're actually looking, about re looking at refinancing it now. So it was, there were some tough times and some slight sleepless nights there. But also I realized that's just part of the business. And as long as you prepared for that, as long as you have some reserves, as long as you can just ride out those rough times, I think you'll come out okay in the end. Was there anything that you could have done to prevent that or predict that or something you would have done differently on the front end? I have learned that going forward, if I'm gonna you know, syndicate something or bring in investors, I don't want something that's a heavy value add deal. So, you know, if we start seeing that, yeah, this needs all these things, I realize the unpredictability of that deal is, is too high for me to feel comfortable with it. I just walked away from a hundred unit deal that um, we had on a contract and we started looking at it and there was a lot of problems with it. And I was like, man, this is not gonna, it could go well, it could also go badly. And I felt like this was not a risk I was willing to take. Um, so, you know, could I have, could I have done a better job on front? Um, I mean, we could have had some contingencies and say, you know, we have the budget for the rehab, let's add 20% for all these unknowns, right? That would have gotten us closer to the actual number, but mm -hmm. you know, that was a, a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess from there, was there anything that you did differently on other deals as far as due diligence or anything with plumbing or anything that you've learned on that front? Because I think each deal, like it, it's 
a running joke we have in our group is that, you know, if, if your first deal is a home run, you're almost always going to uh, get kind of dumb, fat and lazy with uh, some of your next ones and think you're better than you are and miss things as opposed to the people that have an issue on their first couple deals and work through it you know what can happen, you know what you need to look out for. So you definitely had that happen. So I guess as far as doing due diligence and research on future projects, was this something that, you know, you changed the way that you analyze some of these deals or maybe did more due diligence to hopefully prevent uh, things like this? Definitely coming into the, to the deals with eyes wide open and, and really seeing, you know, if there are some significant problems in that property, either just walk away from it or, you know, get some significant discounts on the purchase price. Um, not just go in there and thinking everything is going to be blue skies and unicorns, right? It's it's just a, it, it's definitely has sharpened my eye for looking at a deal from a quality standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, we definitely go in there and you know, we'll walk every unit. We will, you know, scope the sewers, look at the roof, we'll do all the things that we can do to really get a good idea of it. And then we can usually see, right, how well has this property been upkept? And if it's, you know, if it's kind of dirty and, you know, mechanical systems are in poor, poor shape, we know that there's probably a bunch of additional problems throughout this property. Mm. And that's gonna that's kind of a red flag right if they can't take care of the major system what about all these minor systems that we not not necessarily can see right so we're trying to buy a little bit of a higher quality asset now also especially during the whole covid situation i want to be in a class b versus a class c because of the challenge of its various tenant classes as well got it so i just want to talk about uh analyzing deals or underwriting deals for a sec this is something that i think and for those that are that are not in this multifamily space, underwriting just means analyzing. You know, maybe you're doing a little extra research, but there is more research typically that goes into bigger deals. So um, for you, Jens, it was it sounds like more of where you felt comfortable. But how did you actually learn how to underwrite multifamily deals? Because um, I think for some that have started to make that transition, they see it's it's not nearly as easy as underwriting a one through four unit property and seeing if the numbers work. I mean, this takes a lot of time in some cases and some of the tools are very complicated uh, or if they're not comfortable in spreadsheets, it's just very difficult. So can you take us through your process, how you got comfortable analyzing, underwriting deals, and then also talk about how you think someone else can uh, get better at doing it? <clears throat> yeah, and there's a, you know, there's a bunch of different models out there and you can write your own as well, right? I mean, I like to use some that that somebody else has put some some thought into creating and I'll I'll take one of those models. Um, I always just start by looking at what's the property, how is the current performance of this property? You know, what is it doing in terms of income and expenses and use that as my baseline. And then I'll say, okay, is there a room to raise rents? You know, there's a value add component. Is there room to raise rents by looking at surrounding properties and, you know, properties that are similar in age and quality? And if I can see, you know, the, the, the property down the street gets $200 more in rent, what do I need to do to be at that level, right? So we try to estimate what it will cost per unit to upgrade them to a level that makes sense uh, to, to raise rents. But then also the expenses, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I can cut all these different expenses. I said, well, maybe, maybe not, right? So I'm kind of cautious around looking at utilities, 
you know, I know that's probably going to be very hard to reduce unless you spend a lot of money on low floor toilets and LEDs and so forth. I look at insurance. That's probably going to be the same or higher than the seller. Taxes are most likely going to be higher. So all those things, you know, you got to have a realistic picture of what they're going to be and how they're going to increase over time. Then into, you know, repairs and maintenance. I see a lot of people have very optimistic numbers around that. We try to, you know, normalize those. So it's basically just going through a process. This is through experience, I guess, to some degree, and also kind of rule of thumb. But just looking through all these expenses and see, are you realistic around them? And and try try to achieve that. You know, a lot of people say it should be about 50% expense ratio. Try to kind of look at that if it's way higher than that. What's the problem if it's way lower? What did we miss, right? Um, so it does take some time. You know, there's a lot of videos out there people can study and see, you know, how people are doing it and, and then learn from that. But then we also look at, you know, if we do a, what kind of split between the general partners and limited partners can we do in order for the returns to make sense? You know, can we, what does the financing look like? You know, what other things? Because it's the whole picture, the whole package, how much money we need to raise for, repairs so it's really a, a package that's going to put together that you have to put together and to see if this deal makes sense mm-hmm. I that answer i guess but that's kind of how i look at it do you guys do you use a tool that you bought somewhere do you use a tool that you created where, where did you get your tools for underwriting or analyzing cities or analyzing properties i mean we just bought a tool for um for the underwriting, you know, I've used a few different ones. I have a few that I like, and I just bought them. I made my own modifications to them uh, for the underwriting. <clears throat> for, the, for the analyzing cities and stuff, to be honest, I don't go into a ton of that. I sometimes feel like that we have some geographical advantages by being there. So if you look at it from a distance, it may not be the best market in the world, but being in that market, having local knowledge helps us generate profits, even though it may not meet all the, the criteria you normally would want to look for in the market. Got it. So because you guys are local, you can get a feel. You don't necessarily need to figure out city data or things like that because you're there and you have kind of a feel on the pulse of the, the city and the neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so we know, but also, you know, any city has good and bad areas, right? So we'll just try to target the nicer areas in that city to make sure that we do ride any kind of, or uh, uh, minimize our risks by choosing the right neighborhoods, choosing the right tenant class and everything. Got it. Do you mind just sharing what, if you remember what tool you use to analyze deals just for anyone yeah, that's. I use uh, Michael Blanc's. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did a syndicated deal analyzer. So that's one I had Rob Beardsley on a, on a webinar a few weeks ago and he has another interesting, um, uh, model two that I may look into just having a chance to really dig into it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, one thing that I didn't want to skip over, we talked a little bit about repairs that need to happen on a property, which for any value add property, you want to get a scope of those repairs. How much of that do you feel you need before getting a deal under contract and then peeling the layers back? You know, cause a, a question we get a lot is there are things that I need to know to feel comfortable with the property, but the broker is saying you need to get it under contract first and then you can get all this stuff. We'll, we'll peel back all layers, but we can't give it to every single person who's interested because it's just too many people. So what do you say to that? If, if a broker were to say that to you? 
Yeah, I mean, this, you know, we, we need to at least know a little bit about the quality of the unit. So at least have some interior unit pictures, maybe, you know, get a, a, a feel for what's the roof, what's the major, major mechanical. So we can kind of do an estimate or a guesstimate of what it will cost, right? You know, um, and typically, you know, if you have the traditional 80s or 90s interior of apartment, it needs to be upgraded. We made some we made some kind of educated guesses on what it would cost per door to bring it up to, to standard, right? You know, five or seven thousand dollars, and we just kind of build that into our model, and then maybe add, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars if it's a bigger property for roof and other things. We make sure that we have okay. Will it still make sense if we if you put another you know million dollars into it in addition to the purchase price? Will it still make sense? So we're not just scraping by and trying to do repairs on cash flow and everything else, right? So we just do our best doing the underwriting, you know, and if we come out to price that makes sense and we, we can get it on the contract, then do our due diligence period. You know, we either have to confirm or disconfirm those those initial assumptions and see if it still makes sense, right? You know, if it needs new boilers, needs new roof, and that's hundreds of thousands of dollars, we either walk from the deal or we try to get, you know, uh, a concession from the seller on there. Got it. And this is probably more of an art than a science question, but another thing that uh, I ha not having done deals this size that we're talking about, I feel like would be a sticking point for me is a challenge of understanding how much to rehab a property that it's not clear cut. If you put 2000 or $6,000 into the unit, here's exactly how much your rent can be or should be. So do you have any rules of thumb or ways that you think about putting money into units to rehab them about then coming up with an idea of what you should be able to raise rents to, or what type of research would you do to understand something like that? So I always kind of follow that rule of thumb that I, that I like is your capital or your investment in upgrading a unit should return at least 20 to 25%. Uh, annualized, right? So you put $5,000 in, you can raise your rent by $100 a month. That's like 24%, I think, of, of return on that CapEx, right? So I know other people have rules of thumb that say, you know, you need to pay it back in three years. Um, you, you, so something like that. I feel okay with that 20 to 25% because we tend to hold the properties a little bit longer. Now, how do you know how much you can raise the rents to? I think it was the other part of your question. Yeah. You know, you look at the neighboring properties and you see, okay, what are, you know, a two, one bedroom, what is it getting down the street? Okay, it's getting a hundred dollars more. What is the level of finishes they have? Do they have vinyl, you know, luxury vinyl flooring? Do they have, you know, upgraded appliances? Whatever they have, right? And you look at yours and you say, it's tired, it's built in the seventies. Can I get to that same level for that? And can I then raise the rent, right? Because the markets tend to, you know, go in lockstep. Um, that similar property will get similar income. So we always just kind of look around and see. But also, if there's a property down the street to get $200 more, we may say, yeah, that's okay, but it's a little aggressive. So let's back it off and say maybe we can get $100 more, right? Right. Okay. Are there any specific tools or, or is it just looking at rental comps or any websites that you would recommend people look at to just get that, that feeling, get, get comfortable enough to do some projections? 
So uh, I always just look at apartments.com first. That's my initial kind of research, look around there. Then I will call property managers and I just, I'm kind of honest. I just say, hey, I'm doing kind of a, a rent survey. Uh, yeah. What what are you charging for two one? What's what's the size? What's the amenities? Because you got to be careful. Let's say somebody offers a washer and dryer and you don't. Well, how much is that worth? Maybe they have a pool and you don't. Whatever the differences are. So you look at all those amenities as well. Just call around. And then I've also done plenty of secret shopping. You go to the market and you pretend to want to rent an apartment and you <laughs> look around and you say, okay, what does it? What um, what is the quality like and what is the quality of the property I'm looking at and how do I get to that level if I want to raise the rent by that much? So, so are you, and, and my multifamily mentor does, and I mean, it's not a secret. People do this. This is a great way to get an idea of comps and uh, you can play both sides of the table. You could say you're interested in buying. You could say you're interested in renting, you know, it depends. So when you make your first rounds of calls, do you typically, what do you typically say? Do you typically say you're looking to rent? Do you typically say you're buying in the area? Uh, like talk us through that. Yeah. I mean, I would just call and pretend to be renting. Yeah. You know, just say renting and, you know, this is my criteria of what I'm looking for. And, and that gives me initial feel for it. I may also pretend to, you know, or not pretend, but just say I'm doing a rent survey, you know, Hey, what are, you know, what are the ranges for your two ones or whatever the sizes you have? And some will answer that some won't, um, you know, I even gone, you know, the buying in the area, I would usually call, um, you know, maybe if I can get find like the owner of the property management company, or as you pretend to say, Hey, I want to use you as my property manager. What do you think about this property and actually get their input on it? What can I raise rents to if I bought it and stuff? So there's a few different strategies. You know, if you are serious about it and you need a new manager, Hey, call that, call some companies, interview them and, and get their feel for it. Even when you're doing a walkthrough, have them join you so they can get a feel for what that property is like. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, you touched on adding more deals during coronavirus and you have a couple of deals that are pending or under contract now. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your, you and your team strategy for finding deals? Um, if it changed at all on coronavirus, if you've found deals specifically a certain way, or you've had to change the way you find deals. That hasn't really changed. We still use broker relations and to, to find them. So it was very slow, like early in the year Q, you know, Q2, maybe into Q3, but things have picked up again with the number of deals that are on the market. Um, you know, the last deal, the one we have on a contract now is 104 units in Cleveland. And that was actually through a broker relationship. It had been listed in March. The seller took it off because he got nervous yeah. about coronavirus. It got came back on the market and my partner got the first look at it. So it never really actually went fully, you know, it, it was kind of a pocket listing, if you will, and we were able to get the first look at it, which was, which was pretty awesome. But the strategy hasn't really changed. I mean, there's still a tremendous interest and competition seems to be very high still doing all this. Can you talk about also, so we're addressing the two main things that are, I'd say, challenge uh, points for people in multifamily finding deals, and then we're going to get to finding money. Can you talk a little bit about your guys' process for raising capital uh, and just 
how, how different maybe it is from what you thought raising capital would be like to then also what you guys do to, to raise capital for deals? Yeah. So, I mean, we typically do the friends and family model of 506B. So, you know, we find people that, that are interested, we create a relationship with them and then we, you know, bring them into our deals as, as they become, become available. Um, it's really a, I think anybody who wants to raise money for, for anything, they have to start early, right? Do it before you need the money, because if you need the money, you sound a little more desperate. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing, right? So, I mean, I started on it before I even know I uh, had any deals that was going to be even close to, to needing money for, and just start creating those relationships, trying to put, you know, people into your database, start, you know, having uh, regular conversations with the newsletters and other thing and kind of keep them warm that, you know, that, that, that touch those, those touches to kind of just build those, build that base. You know, and then when you have a deal, you know, you send it out. But typically, I followed up with uh, to a few people that I know are pretty interested and said, "Hey, you know, Paul, did you see this this in, this investment is something you're interested in? You know, just give them a little bit of a a push and say, is this probably going to be oversubscribed? So, you know, I want you in there. You know, give a little bit of urgency, a little bit of of scarcity, so people <clears> will <throat> take action and follow up with them. And you know, it's been you know, it's been fairly successful just getting getting people to, um, to, to partner with us and because people understand the value of real estate investing and they don't want to go and buy their own duplex or fourplex and try to manage it themselves. So that's why we help them. If it was just between those two things, finding deals or finding money's money, would you say, uh, which of those would you say would be a, a bigger challenge for either you, for you guys? And then I'm curious if you think it's also the same industry wide. I think there's more money than there are deals. <laughs> so that's how I've, you know, we, we can fill up our investments pretty quickly um, because we, you know, we look at a lot of deals and we pass on a lot of them. We're not going to pay the premiums that some other investors are. So, you know, we look at deals, but find the ones that make sense. It's a little harder than finding the money. I mean, we typically can, can find the money very, relatively easily. Got it. Okay. Um, I guess just winding down here, a couple, a couple of closing questions. You work with a lot of beginner investors or people that are considering getting into multifamily or syndication, just because I want to make it as actionable as possible. I'm going to throw a preface in there. So other than mindset, which I think we would both agree is a huge thing that people need to get over the idea of uh, belief and understanding that they can do this. So other than mindset though, where do you see tactically most people uh, go wrong or get stuck when they are starting to do this? Uh, a couple of areas. I mean, not taking enough action, right? Getting busy with, oh, I need my website. I need my business cards. I need all these other things. Like, well, yeah, but you really need to call brokers and start under underwriting deals, right? I mean, that's really, that's a given to go anywhere. Get some deals, underwrite them and see what makes sense. So you get a feel for that. So taking the right action is one thing. I think the other, the other area is, trying to do everything by yourself. A lot of people like, oh, I want to do it myself. It's like, okay, that's fine. That's the mindset I had initially too. But in reality, that's going to take a long time for you to grow to any significant level. And, you know, maybe it's a 20-year plan you have, and that's totally fine. You can do one, one property at a time. But I also see that if you don't really make it important enough to you, you're not going to take the necessary action, and it's going to be too painful when things don't work out with these small deals 
and you just kind of give up and lose interest. So you got to move forward as, as, as quickly as you can and grow as quickly as you can to really get that, um, the, the momentum going. Just to maybe, I guess, put a button on the idea of people doing multifamily as opposed to single family. And, and I guess if, if anyone out there is listening and they're happy with their strategy and it's single family or multifamily or, or mobile homes or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But I guess for someone out there, Jens, that's considering the difference financially between syndication and larger multifamily and controlling all the deals themselves and buying deals with their own capital. Can you just talk about the difference, I guess, in financial compensation? Because, you know, I, I think the other thing that a lot of, I didn't understand this, but a lot of beginner uh, investors don't understand either is that um, someone that says, you know, they have 5,000 units or 3,000 units, you know, a syndicator, you know, sure, they've accumulated with investors that many units, but, uh, you know, the, the people that are just getting started, they hear that number and think, wow, they own 5,000 units. They must be driving a Ferrari and flying private. And, you know, they're just, they're, they're making hundreds of million dollars a year if they're doing that. So I guess just if you could maybe talk to that for a sec of the financial compensation, how it actually works being a syndicator, um, how syndicators make money. You don't have to talk about specifics if you don't want to, but just I mean, even maybe some ballpark numbers or just, you know, like, like simple kind of oversimplified numbers of what someone could think about making or, you know, what the, the financial compensation actually is for doing real estate syndication. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because I, I had the same thing. Oh my God, 5,000 units you know, you must be rich. <laughs> But in reality, so, you know, I've seen this happen in my own life, right? So how you get compensated. So you, you have the general partnership team. Those are the people that put the deal together. And that team typically owns anywhere from 20 to 30% of the deal. It can, it can go, you know, but that's kind of a, a, a range. That means that for your sweat equity, if you will, the work you put in, you get 20 to 30% of the deal. That mean, but then if you are five people, then you have to split that five ways, right? Um, uh, so you own a percentage of that percentage. However, the, the ways you make money on it then is like when you put the deal together, you get an, an acquisition fee. So let's say it's a $10 million deal and you charge a 3% acquisition fee. That's $300,000 that gets split among you know, let's say you're three people that does it, that's a hundred grand for one deal, right? So that's a significant amount of money up front that you get. Then as you close the property and get into, you know, the day-to-day -day management of it, you then can charge an asset management fee. That's just managing the manager. That can be one or 2% of the annual income. You know, let's say it makes a million dollars a year in, in net income, that would be, you know, a hundred or 200 grand there. Again, you have to split it among the people that's on the general partnership side. Um, you also then, depending on how you structure it, maybe you get parts of the cash flow as well, depending on the structure, how you do, what kind of splits, and that gets kind of technical and complicated, but you can maybe also earn a portion of, of the cash flow. And then the big payday usually comes when the property sells or refinances, because if you own 30% of the deal and it had double in value, now this $10 million deal is worth 20, of that extra $10 million of profit, if you own 30% of that, you know, that's, that's uh, $3 million that then goes back to the general partnership team and gets split again. So that could be a million dollar payday five, seven, 10 years down the road, right? Mm. So acquisition fee, ongoing cash flow, 
and then uh, capital appreciation at the end are really the three ways you make money. But yes, one syndicated syndicated deal is not going to make you a millionaire, and it's not going to replace your W two income. So you need to do a few a year. You need to yeah. kind of get that and get them turning over and everything else, right? So that's kind no. of. That was great. I, I really appreciate you breaking it down so so simply like that because, again, I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing any strategy, but I think knowing, if, for most people listening to the show, their, their short-term goal is financial freedom. You know, they, they might not like their job and they hear something like this and I just want people to know the avenues that can get them there. And I don't look at, I, I change the way I look at syndication. I don't look at syndication as a passive cash flow. It's, it's a career. You just enjoy the career probably a lot more than your other career. And you can make more money and you can build well, like all the, the thing, and you work with people you like, like it's, it's all those things, but it's not a passive income stream. Like it's, it's work, but it's the work that you like to do. And then you're financially compensated, uh, salary wise, but also, you know, equity wise. So like, I just, I want that to be very clear. So that was just a great explanation of, you know, what it actually looks like. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah and you can build your own portfolio, you know, if you buy one property at a time and refinance and do everything, yes, you can build an amazing portfolio, but the amount of capital you need is going to be pretty big, right? In yeah. To, you know, in order to, to replace your W2 income, it's going to take some time. Absolutely. So Jens, I, I think that's a good point that we can, uh, we can wind down on. So for, for those out there, uh, looking to maybe get started. I know you do uh, multifamily coaching. Uh, you also put out content around, you know, what you do and, and people can learn about your deals. So uh, what's the best way for people to, to either find that stuff or get in touch or just follow the journey? Yeah. So people can go to open doors with an S capital.com open doors, capital.com. And uh, I love to talk to people that can schedule a free call with me opendoorscapital.com slash call and get on a strategy call for me with free you know talk about investing coaching whatever they want to do so that's the best way to reach me you know i do host monthly webinars and other things so if you reach out to me uh sign up for my mailing list when you go to my website you can you'll get included to that uh, on that as well okay awesome we will definitely link all that and uh I definitely want to check that out. So we will we'll be posting that. Um, Jens, this is really fun, man. I, I appreciate you walking through a couple of these concepts in depth more so than some have uh, in over a hundred episodes. So uh, I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, even that last part was awesome, but it's just really helpful. I think for the beginner investor trying to think about how to get started. So uh, before we hop off, I guess any, any last parting word or comment uh, just for the listener out there. No, just take action. It's uh, it's a rewarding uh, business to be in, but it's a business. It is not a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point to end on. So Jens, thank you again for coming on. Best of luck in 2020 and beyond. You too, Jonathan. All right. Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step -step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.